Welcome, welcome. It's good to have you here on the webinar. I am Trish Regan. I've been uh, telling you I wanted to get together with you for a while, of course, in a live format where you could ask questions to me. You could ask anything you know you want uh, to me. Certainly, we've got Charles Thorngren from Legacy Precious Metals here as well, who knows a whole lot about markets and gold, and so you can ask anything to him. These are challenging and somewhat scary times, I would say, only in that you even have the president admitting that we are looking at Armageddon <laughs> and I used the word nuclear the other night uh, at a party sort of shindig for Democrat fundraising. These are treacherous things to be talking about. And, and one of the questions I think many people have is it just rhetoric from a politico that, you know, maybe is not being so specific as his, with his word choices, or is that really what we're facing? And if in fact, this is what we're facing and, and I'm for one in the camp, uh, very, very concerned about our economy and have been very bearish for some time, going back to summer of 2020, bearish about where we're heading in light of all this inflation that I knew would happen. I think that you've got to be prepared somehow. And I know everybody wants to be prepared. This is our this is our future after all. So I thought it was a good time to all get together. I want to bring into the conversation Charles Thorngren, one of uh, my, my favorite people. He's actually one of the sponsors of the Trish Regan Show, which which is great. We appreciate all his patronage and we appreciate always, Charles, your perspective on things right now, because, you know, you you have, a, I think, a really good sort of fundamental understanding of the, the challenges that we face as Americans in terms of being able to keep up our lifestyle for generations to come. And also you have a, a strong, solid, fundamental background in, in how to protect that with the use of gold and diversification you know, of your portfolio through some of these other alternative assets. So we thank you for being here. Charles Thorngren, CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. Oh, thanks, Trish. I'm always happy to be here. I'm really excited that you wanted to do this because this, <laughs> to me, this is the right forum, right? Let's speak. People speak their minds. We can talk about everything, you know, because well, I think in this world of sound bites, it's good to get a forum where people can speak their mind. Yeah, and they can come in, they can join and, and ask these questions. And I would remind everybody, you can submit questions via the chat and we already have um some uh, ian is is writing in with a question so we're we're going to get to that thank you ian and um we're going to just dig into all of these things and actually one of the reasons why and charles we talked about this i wanted to be on a platform that was more private and more intimate is that it's tricky nowadays with uh <laughs> some of the word choice i mean i'm like wait i can't say recession like, I, I right. can't actually say we're in a recession. And, you know, that's just, I'm sorry, the classic definition of two quarters of negative growth. And I think as an investor, you want to always be anticipating the future, which means you can't bury your head in the sand like an ostrich. Like, frankly, and I'm going to get all worked up about this. <laughs> frankly, the Federal Reserve did, right, for way too long. And our Treasury Secretary, I mean, give me a break, the whole transitory nonsense that they used over and over again and thought people would buy it. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But if you, if you, if you, you know, push back on this, somehow that's not, you know, in, in keeping with what they or the social media platforms want you to do. And that's in and of itself, a 
extremely alarming to me and not who we are as a country. But all that aside, I would just say that Americans need to know you got to protect yourselves. How do you do that? That's what we want to get into today. But we've got a ton of questions coming in already. So let me start here with Ian. And he's asking that, you know, you've got countries around the world, like here in the UK, U.S. actions that are dragging the pound and other currencies down with uh, saying a U.S. recession is on the way. Is the U.S. too powerful to damage other countries' economies? This is an excellent question. I, I'm i going to let Charles weigh in. I'll, I'll give my take sort of first on it. I get a kick out of the, you know, the left is very sort of, okay, we don't like America. We don't like America. Well, <laughs> here's the deal. Like, since World War II, America's kind of it. Like, we're the game in town, right? And that's because we became the world's reserve currency. Right. And then, and Charles knows more about this than I do. Um, but then, of course, you know, we, we lost the gold standard. We, we had all the gold, right, following World War II. And that's one of the reasons why we became the world's uh, reserve currency. And we used to peg our dollars to the gold. Well, now that we don't anymore, uh, because we, we undid that whole Bretton Woods system, now that we don't, our Federal Reserve has an enormous amount of power, enormous amount of power, not just over us as individuals in terms of our livelihoods, but the entire world. So, you know, look, the U.S. has a massive impact on inflation everywhere else in the world because as the U.S. dollar gets stronger, well, guess what? Every other currency goes down. I mean, did you ever think you'd see the UK's pound where it is right now? I certainly didn't. So, Charles, um, we got a ton of questions coming in. Ian, thank you for that one. I'll let you take take that one away. I mean, we really, you know, since World War II, we're kind of it. And I think it's gotten more challenging in light of no longer having the gold standard. Right. Yeah. And it's a great question, Ian. Um, should we be able to affect other economies? The, the right answer would be no. The real answer is yes. But every economy of your major countries affects the economy of other countries. This is what world trade does. This is what having a trade scenario that allows us to interact internationally. We have to have valuations pegged to something. So that is always going to happen. Are we too powerful? We're only It only feels like we're too powerful to you right now because the administration in place is not doing its job correctly. Had the job by the Fed been done to fight inflation sooner, it wouldn't be as bad. Now, that's not to say it wouldn't be bad. We were running into this. Let's not forget the pandemic. That was devastating to economies around the world. So there was always going to be a question, how do we restart, and can we do it effectively in each individual nation? And the U.K. had some very, uh, some very difficult times. It was handled a little differently there than it was here in the United States. So the recession was coming. Is it going to be prolonged because of our actions? Yes. Is it going to be deeper because of the actions? Yes. That is the case. And, you know, the U.K.'s had an issue since it joined the euro. Right. I mean, they had power in the world. They had a currency power, even though the United States was considered the world currency. The UK was right there and it was always at a, a valuation much higher. Right. Parity is uh, unbelievable. Um, 
how do we get out of it? That's going to be tough. I, I know right now that you know there's the argument about um, the administration in, in England buying gilts, buying its own treasuries. You know that's always going to create problems, and that's going to show a weakness to the world. So there was, there's, it's not just U.S. Um, actions that are affecting your economy and your currency. It's your administration as well. But we're seeing that around the world. Yeah, I mean that's a, it's a it's an excellent point, and you know I think all of it's tied. Wouldn't you say to, well, it's many factors, both in terms of the money printing, which was happening everywhere because, you know, that was just sort of the way of the world, to your point, as a result of what we saw in March 2020. And it worked for a while, right? Like it, it was, I'm going to say it like this was, you know, I'm not always the biggest fan of the Fed, but I give them props for what they did at that point in time, because you can't just shut down an economy and, you know, call it a day. I, I give the administration at that time props for doing what it needed to do in terms of getting some stimulus checks out, et cetera. I think they probably went one too many. And then, you know, President Biden came in with another round um, and the Fed kept going and going. So, you know, at some point, like the Parties got to stop, guys. That was right. perhaps the biggest challenge. But every single country around the world was doing that. And when you hear the likes of Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan, smart guy, very, very smart guy, by the way, when he's talking about something that could be worse than a recession, let me ask you, Charles, before we get to, and thank you guys for all your questions, before we get to some of these other questions, what does that mean? Worse than a recession. I'll tell you, um, there's depression, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's collapse. But in between those, between recession and depression, you have stagflation. Yeah. Which is massive. Very hard to combat. Um, and, and this is why the um, inactivity of the Fed is so hard. Mm-hmm. We know we're going to raise the Fed rates to 4.5%. We already know that that's a given. Right. They've already said that, but we know they're going to go higher. And really what you need for stagflation, 5 percent on those Fed rates, 5 percent unemployment and two quarters of uh, a down GDP. So we're almost in a stagflationary period. We're not the 1970s all over again (laughs) in more ways than one. It is because we know here's, you know, we're not jumping too much outside the question, but home prices. You have a massive issue that's coming that people haven't, they're beginning to talk about it, but not in the correct way. When you have interest rates this high and you have houses this unaffordable, you now make it tough for people to maintain their houses, Mm -hmm. to create extra income by refinancing their houses to help spur an economy, especially one that's in recession. So you have a scenario here where there's not enough housing. We know supplies are are, are limited, and it's only going to get more limited because who in their right mind is going to sell a house they almost have paid off and get this new loan at at 7%? Yeah. You don't have that turnover. It doesn't make financial sense. So this is added to that pile. So we will see the stagflation hit, and and not to be – to doomsday. <laughs> to doomsday, but I do think this is a, a prolonged recession stagflation. And when no, I say I, prolonged, I, I, I'm thinking five years or more. Well, you know what? You and I, 
look, I, I'm very honest with my viewers and I have been saying for some, I mean, look, I had people saying to me back in, in summer of 2020, when we got the second stimulus, like, Hey, can you cool it on that? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. You can't have this much stimulus. And I'm like, why, why am I that where, where's, where's our fed? Like, where are the, you know, the professionals? I mean, to me, it's, it's pretty obvious. And as we get the, the inflation reports in now that the latest PPI numbers are out, we saw yet again, an increase in things that people need, right? Food, energy, housing, all these sorts of things. Uh, The food price is really, I mean, eggs are up 96% just since the start of the year. Let me go to, um, Oh, I'm going to jump ahead just really quickly because I want to let Cubans. I see them stacking up. Did you see (laughs) the the, the Cubans wondering where Fluffy is? Thank you for asking that question. You are very sweet. Fluffy is my dog. (laughs) Fluffy is my dog. And actually, he was nearby the studio. I was like, I'm sorry, honey, you got to sit this one out. But uh, he'll be on uh, tomorrow's show. Anyway, let me go to Stephen Waldo. Um, As a hypothetical, Stephen asks, if the war in Ukraine escalates further, possibly even into tactical nuclear weapons, what happens to our economy? What happens to these um, markets? Um, I'll I'll let you take a stab at that and then we can talk. You know, I'm going to say something that most people don't like to hear, but it's still truth. Years ago, war was good for an economy. Okay, because what would happen is you would have a workforce that would go away and open up jobs for new people. um, And it would spur a national support. People would support their country. They would buy bonds to help with the war effort. They would do all these things, right? Mm-hmm. So it used to be that, you know, the saying was, if you're in a bad, uh, you know, political environment or your economy is not doing so well, start a war with someone. You'll get it fixed in about four years. Those days are gone. We don't fight the same way. Um, we don't have the effect on unemployment the way that it used to. And, and unfortunately, what I mean by that is, the amount of people don't die the way they used to in wars. It's, I know it's an ugly thing to say, but when we're talking economic terms, this is the reality. Yeah. So further escalation, in, and I'm going to say the European theater, right, because in my mind, Russia is attacking NATO. They're just doing it one country at a time. Okay, so further escalation, I think we see it. Does it go <laughs> nuclear? No, because Russia doesn't want unusable land. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> you, you, this is, you, you mentioned like they're, they're attacking NATO sort of one country at a time. I do think, you know, it, it's a rare moment when I, I gotta, you know, somebody's applause, please. It's a rare moment when I actually agree with much out of the Biden administration, but they did point out in, in their recent release of their national security strategy that China and Russia are big threats in the future. I think that that's a realistic assumption. And they said some other things I don't agree with, but in terms of China and Russia, um, these are things that I have actually maintained for a long time. And I think you're, you're right in terms of we run the risk that there's further trouble in Europe. I am a little frustrated myself with, say, Germany that should have, should have been, you know, eyes wide open a whole 
a whole long time ago. I mean, what were they do- doing it being completely dependent on Russia for their nat gas supply? These are mistakes that, by the way, I wish the U.S. would not make when we talk about diversifying outside of our you know, energy sources that we have here. Okay, fine, guys, let's go for it. Do all the green stuff you want, but don't make the American people pay by not having enough investment in the stuff we already have, right? Because you don't want to pay both in terms of economic costs and you don't want to have to pay in terms of the national security costs as we see Europe is struggling with right now. So I would anticipate, yeah, that we will see um, more challenges ahead and it's going to get tough economically in in Europe, right? I mean, we're going into a cold winter. How are people going to heat their homes? It's that is the case in point. And Mm -hmm. so that's I I think that it's going to get tough. You know, you can't fight those kind of battles without a financial repercussion. Yeah. So I and I don't know how you print more money right now, Charles. I mean, they're going to have you've already got inflation. Like what would you're supposed to keep some powder dry? Thank you very much. And this Fed just did not do that. Um, At what point? A great question for you, I would say. At what point do you think they come to that realization? Because that's the big question. When can we quit playing that game? And and that's ultimately going to decide how we come out of all this, really. Okay. Um, Ian has a good question. And I, 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 I'm not sure if we, I think that we can enable, they're asking if we can enable the chat. Uh, t- is it just us or can they, I know that we're seeing these, if they, if they want to join via audio, they're welcome to. I'm going to let, um, the folks behind the scenes work on that because I'm kind of a tech neophyte on some of this stuff. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second, Ian. Hopefully we'll have an answer to that question. But before, um, before we get to that, let me go down here to Stephen, who's asking about whether or not we're in a recession. The administration keeps saying we're not, not in a recession and god help me if i dare say we are on social media but anyway um charles we're not on social media right now so what's the answer are we in a recession by definition of recession yes we've been in a recession and the question i'm gonna i'm gonna do the follow-up to steven there the follow is how bad does it get pretty bad right i mean you're talking five years i'm thinking 10 years i mean is i i'll let you ponder that i'll just tell you again i'm very honest with people and i i've gotten very i began getting very very conservative in terms of my own personal investing at the start of the year i i i'm a big believer just because i like to be able to sleep at night and i've been on the front lines of the year 2000 I moved to San Francisco and I remember being a local reporter at the local station there. And one of the stories we did was you couldn't get a U-Haul in San Francisco in the start of the year 2000, because guess what? Um, 2001 actually was 2001. Everybody was leaving January, 2001. The wait for a U-Haul was enormous. And my husband and I, we moved into this little temporary apartment and we're looking around for the real one. Right. And the prices were sky high. Rents were sky high. And I want to say rents came down like 40, 50, in some cases, 60% in the three, four months that we were looking and we had to move out of corporate housing and into a a real place. And so it was, it was insane. So I I've been on the front lines of that and I've been on the front lines of 2008 2008 to me was really really scary and i was scared way before i um 
I'm very close to the news cycle, obviously, with what I do. And so I, I was getting really nervous. And I remember people saying, Trish, you know, you're worrying too much. And my financial advisor was like, you got to stop. Like, you're, you're really living your job here. Take it easy. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. You do not understand. Everybody's holding this stuff. So if this goes down... It's toast, right? Like our entire financial community could collapse. So again, I, I'm starting to get really, I started getting really nervous in January. I feel like this inflation thing, to your point, stagflation is problematic. I worry about a lost decade. I mean, in terms of myself and my family and my own retirement, these are things I, I really do think about. And so I'm a big believer in making sure that you have asset allocation that corresponds to the risk that you are willing to take on. Um, so let's, uh, let's continue down. Um, David Zimmerman asking, do you think the current administration will eventually have to retap into domestic energy sources or do they want perpetually high gas? This is, this is a good one, David. <laughs> do they want perpetually high gas prices? I mean, I think, I, I think it's kind of stupid if you want it because you're not going to get reelected. But, uh, what's really going on there, especially when it's so evident, this administration has no energy plan. None. Well, they came out and said they want to make ex- energy prices more expensive to push the green agenda. That was their goal. Uh, and, and, you know, <clears throat> the big question there is do they have the ability to restart it? It's really not up to them. That's the thing that you have to understand. It's still private companies doing it. The reason they're not putting more money in it because they know this administration wants to shut them down. Mm-hmm. Why would they put energy into a system that they know the government is going to fight them on? So not only do they have to come out and say, sorry, all those people that we made promises to that we were all going to be powered by the sun and the wind by the end of my election. They have to get the companies that fund drilling and pipelines and open up pipelines to believe them that if they do it, they're not going to shut them down again in a year, in two years, in three years. Because they will lose tons of money by doing that. It's it's very expensive to get it restarted. So that's a big part of the problem as well. Yeah. I mean, and you think about these companies that even in 2020, I mean, oil prices were at like 10 bucks a barrel, right? I mean, they, they had just sunk. And so the companies are saying, wait a second, do we really want to invest in this? And then we've got the threat of an administration that is not going to be very hospitable towards us as investors. And a lot of my friends, um, one of my really good friends actually runs an energy portfolio. And he's like, this is insane. Like it's, you know, red, yellow, green because of the ESG standards, environmental social governance. They're imposing all of this onto these energy companies. And so you can't value these companies really properly because these big, big funds are, are like, okay, well, we're not investing in that and we're not investing in that. Right. And, you know, they're good companies, right? And heck, we need the oil. But this is, um, it's complicating everything in a really massive way. I just think it's foolish and it's, it's not very thoughtful policy, nor is it thoughtful, um, it's not thoughtful economic or national security policy. It's also just not thoughtful politically because what is the biggest issue this administration is facing as they go into 2024? It's going to continue to be inflation in my view. Um, let me see. Uh, let me go over to 
Let me go to Kurt, who says the U.S. dollar was pegged to oil and other countries were forced to use U.S. dollars to buy oil from OPEC. OPEC started accepting many other countries' currencies a few months ago. The U.S. dollar is worthless now. Why do you believe the U.S. dollar has any value? I I think the U.S. dollar has actually been kind of climbing. But, you know, Kurt, I, I can see how some people may not like I, I see what Kurt is I see what Kurt's saying. In other words, the purchasing power, the purchasing power of the US dollar. And by the way, it's declined like thirty percent in the last several years. Um yes. I, I, I'll get to the exact numbers on that. But you go ahead. Tell me uh, well, your thoughts. You know, does the US dollar have any value? Yes. It's the same value it's always had. Uh, <laughs> what you perceived as worth. Um and that was established when we established a Fed. Um, it's interesting you bring up OPEC because we did talk a little bit about Brenton Woods in the beginning, um, and, and much to you know Trisha's point, at, at some point you can't have just a fixed economy. You have to have – when you have a responsible government, it has to have the ability to flex and contract as needed to grow an economy. When you do it responsibly, it's a beautiful thing. When you do it irresponsibly, you have today. But – we left the Bretton Woods Agreement because our currency wasn't doing very well. Our economy wasn't doing very well, and the world decided they wanted the gold that was backed by that dollar because we had the biggest reserve of gold. So we took the dollar off that reserve so that the rest of the world couldn't get our gold. But Nixon did a, be- a beautiful, brilliant thing. He said, you can only buy oil with dollars, and that gave us the strength of a country for the past 50 years. So now that we see that oil is being sold in other other currencies, we do lose some strength, but but not enough to make us not the reserve currency because everyone still has dollars, um, and they'll spend them out before we have no value. Um, and at some point, things will get fixed here, whether it's 10, 15 years from now, whether it's – you know, a massive upset with the way we do things, America will still be America and we will have strength and we'll come back. Um, you know, one thing to, to realize is the U.S. dollar is the only currency that hasn't changed itself in the history of our world. Um, I put an asterisk there because we did come Besides up with gold the standard. <laughs> yeah, but it was still the same currency. Yeah. So it's not worthless. It's not worth as much and it will still have value. I am going to point out, I was just saying in the last several years, I went back to my my research because I actually wrote this down. I'm fascinated by the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar because when it seems like prices are going up, they really are going up. And it's not it's not it's not just us, you know, people are, oh, you know, when you start to think, oh, maybe it's me. It's not just it's not just you who thinks that. In fact, since the year 2000, the purchasing price of the U.S. dollar has fallen by 30 percent. At the same time, the U.S. has lost 97% of its purchasing power since the Federal Reserve Act was passed by Congress in 1913. So one thing that I think you can look at, and I don't know the numbers from the, the, the demise of Bretton Woods, but if we've lost 30% since the year 2000 and Bretton Woods happened under Nixon. Um, so if you back that up, I bet that 97% decline in the value of the dollar since 1913 is mostly attributable to those recent, those recent years. I mean, I, I think about my parents' house, you know, my dad, 
he uh, he was a, a small town lawyer in New Hampshire growing up, and we lived in a, in a nice place. My parents still live there uh, on the same road in the same house that I grew up in on a couple acres. And you know what? He he bought that land for about $7,000, and he built his house with my mom for, you know, maybe $28,000. I mean, all in, it was less than forty grand, but people used to make, you know, my dad was a lawyer and maybe, you know, a, a good year back then he could make 40 grand. And it was, you know, a, a nice house, a modest house, but a nice house. I mean, it, it, and and he was a lawyer, but there were plenty of people. My, my grandfather, great example. My grandfather never finished the fifth grade and he had eight kids and he worked as a night watchman. And he made 50 bucks a week working Oh gosh, what was it? A hundred hours a week. It's a great story, actually. It's it's part of what we are, I think, as as America. And he built his house with his friends. He got them together. They put this thing together. That house, I'm sure, he built for next to nothing. I went on Zillow the other day. It's still there. It's worth more than a million dollars. I mean, what you're saying granted, is- it's Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is like kind of a a sought after destination now. But that same house. I mean, do you think anybody who was working as a night watchman trying to take care of eight kids could build a house now and house everybody given the, the value of the dollars decline? Impossible. And, and the funny thing is, I bet you if you looked, the property taxes on that house is probably the same $7,000 it costs to buy the land a year. Yeah. yeah. That, that's the value, and that's, that's the loss yeah. of irresponsible spending. We've got, uh, I'm going to answer an anonymous question here. Wonderful to see all of you with all of these questions. Uh, we love this. Um, it's great. Yeah, it's really great. And uh, the Fed anonymous says keeps raising rates but it doesn't seem to be slowing down inflation like they said it would will they just keep raising rates and what will the fallout of other aspects of the economy be excellent question excellent question you want the nice answer you want the real answer i think everyone here wants the real answer right yeah it's going to keep raising rates and i'll tell you why they're not doing it effectively Remember, we just started dealing with this problem that's been around for two years. We didn't start our first Fed rate raise until March. That's seven months ago. Seven months. We've had five hikes five hikes since then. The problem is we're two years behind the ball on the rates, and it's being approached with such a mild hand that it won't help until it takes much longer period of time and a much greater raise. I know that we've talked about it in the past where I said, you know, and I think you were kind of surprised when I said it, that they should be doing full point bumps until we get something under control. And But they didn't have the courage to do it. You know, we, Where's Paul Volcker when you need him? I was just about to say, I mean, listen, he, it, and this is with active, intelligent fighting of inflation. It took Paul Volcker three years to get inflation managed. And we were at 10% on the Fed funds rates. Three years. So taking this approach where we don't really do anything, just kind of kid glove it, it's going to go much longer. Yeah. So Larry Summers, um, another very smart person, 
Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary under Clinton and also the former head of the National Economic Council under Barack Obama, he did an analysis of this recently with some other economists and looked at inflation today versus inflation in 1980. Um, and it, it, in 1980, it was nearly 14%. And he he made the point that it's actually the same. We're looking, if you look at, so they changed, If you know, when, when oh, you know, the, the government's lying to us on inflation, they sort of kind of are because they changed the whole calculation, right? They changed how, and they, they looked at housing as an investment. And so that meant a different sort of component of how they would view inflation. And as a result of that change in calculation, if you were to look at how they calculated inflation back in the early 80s before this change versus today, it means we're in roughly the same spot. So we're probably upwards of 14% if you use the same metrics that they used to use in the 70s and 80s. And you know what Volcker did. Larry Summers knows what Volcker did. We're not doing what Volcker did. Half as much. We're not even at half as much. We're a third. A third of the effect. So if you're not able to tame inflation, and this continues on, that's the stagflation scenario that you're presenting where prices keep going up, but the economy doesn't grow? Absolutely. And that's that's what will happen. You you can't keep having, you know, the PPI go up too. PPI up 0.4% instead of 0.2. So it doubled what they thought. Uh, And this is the first jump in three months. So understand that the summer did what its summer usually does. It it drags um, buying down a little bit, right? People are on vacation. But you have a scenario where if it keeps getting more expensive, for the producer to make the items and it keeps getting more expensive for him to hire people because people won't take a job. They have to keep paying more. It raises the price to the point where average person can't afford to do it. They can't buy the product. So what happens then? The company goes out of business. This is where your unemployment comes. And by slow playing the interest rate, they're making that unemployment become even more massive before it has any effect. It's sad. I mean, I... I was um, recently traveling with my family and we were trying to grab a bite on the the way home and we were driving and I kept looking at my Waze app and it would say there's this restaurant, you know, over here on the way. And I go and look it up and then I'd, I'd find out inevitably on Google that it had closed right. or I'd call and the line was not there. And you think about how many business, small businesses, right? Including like those restaurants, because you're dealing with higher costs, right? You got to pay your people more. You got to pay more for all the ingredients. You, you may have to pay more for your rent. Um, your employees, they've got to travel to and from work. It costs them more. I mean, the whole thing becomes harder. You've got to raise prices. And if people aren't willing to pay those prices, then you, you risk going out of business. And, and I think we are unfortunately going to see a lot more of that. Um, I'm just jumping around. Keep sending the questions in. Um, I don't know if, if our viewers can see the questions. Um, I don't know if they can see them, but I, I've got a bunch of them right here. So know that I, I want to make sure that we get to everyone. But Michael Fritz is asking because he said the Biden administration is considering sanctions on aluminum. Now what? Um, do you think that the administration is 
is hurting some of these um, commodity industries absolutely. through the the sort of red tape that they're putting in place. Uh, well, absolutely. This is this is all about that green push. You, when when you give the nod to a man who's no longer really relevant, but because his past history was so involved in your party, mm-hmm. and you give him the big chair, you can't let him make decisions. That's what we haven't done, and, and, and I'll quit speaking in code now. President Biden is not capable for the job. He got the job because he's been so active and so loyal in the administration of the Democrats. Okay, He's not capable of thinking for himself. So when they whisper in his ear, we need to go green. We're killing all the kids. We need to go green now. You start allowing things to happen, shutting down oil and gas, right? making it difficult for the steel markets. Now we have aluminum. This is not the way you do it. If you look at the way America has transitioned to a more green platform, we've done it with the help of industry, not against industry, because there has to be a balance. Things do not change overnight. Yeah. So now what? More trouble. More, more trouble. And in the area where we're good, right? Automotive. We need aluminum. Um, things that we do well here in America, we need solid steel. We need aluminum. We don't need Chinese steel. We need American steel. Wait, we don't have that anymore. So this is what we need to deal with. And this is why it's going to become more pronounced and more uh, and more difficult to get out of the, the situation we're in. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I mean, and I you'd think that March 2020 would have been the wake up call hmm. that you need to be self-sufficient. From an energy standpoint, from a manufacturing standpoint, and from um, from a technology standpoint, right? I mean, you can't be reliant. And then I feel like we have another wake-up call right in front of us right now, given what Europe is going through. And so this stuff, this stuff matters. Um, let me let me turn to some more. Stephen Winnington's asking. Uh, oh, Trish inspired me to read Paul Volcker's memoirs. I'm glad, Stephen. That's great. Um, I had a guest on the show actually just the other day, uh, a, a longtime friend of mine, former vice chairman actually at at City, and he had a he shared an office with Paul Volcker at one point uh, right before the end of his life. So he gave me some very good good insight into Mr. Volcker's um, thoughts on all this. But anyway, he said, uh, Stephen writes, he talks about his role in getting inflation under control in the 70s, early 80s. We slowly got inflation under control, but there was a deep recession. There was a deep recession. You're right, Stephen. So do we see a deep recession now coming? I'm going to be... I I think we should both try that, Charles. And um, Gosh, I hope not. And I think there are still ways to reverse it. I'm just going to say that. I think if Congress could get its act together and not, you know, be sending helicopter money to Vassar grads who are, you know, doing gender studies (laughs) and and actually think about, I'm sorry, but, you know, I actually got a Pell Grant to Columbia, $20,000, you know, Pell Grant. Those are, those are great. So now you're going to even put, put Pell Grants above anything else. I mean, instead of actually going and fixing the system, which whole other thing that they ought to just, you know, hold these schools accountable. If you're going to get federal Monday money, then you, you know, it's not just a, it's not a game of monopoly because that's basically what it's been. They're writing like, you know, Kids have blank checks to go to school. Anyway, um, do we see a deep recession now coming? 
I, I do. I, I think I see a deep recession. I'm hoping it's not a systemic crisis. Now, I can you know, handle a recession. I think the country can handle a recession. My, my worry, having gone through 2008 and really and truly been on the front lines of that in more ways than one, my husband said when he came home and he's like, wait, you're cooking? Because you know, I used to, we lived in New York and I just order in all the time. He's like, you're cooking. Right. And you're cooking pasta. <laughs> like, I just went bare bones. Like, you know, there was no meat with the meat. I'm like, oh, I, I got really scared. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm battening down the hatches. This was as we went into 2008. Do I see a systemic crisis happening? I don't see that yet. Um, although this UK stuff is making me really nervous. I do see a recession. I do see a global recession. My friend David Malpass at the World Bank just said this just this week. He came out with new commentary predicting just under 9% inflation. It's 8.8 or something for the world uh, this year. But um, what do you think? Recession, possible real crisis, your take? Deep recession guaranteed, uh, and I believe a real world crisis. Yeah. We need to take steps to stop that. I don't think this administration has the courage to do that. I think that's still too politically motivated. They're still worried about an election coming. They're worried about who gets in office in two years from now. And that should be the furthest thing from their mind. Their mind should be focusing on how we fix And this isn't just America's problem right now. That's the important thing to realize. The world's problem. So can we avoid something systemic? I don't think so, because all we can do is affect us and hope the rest of the economies take the same actions. But we see that they're not. The fact that the U.K. started trying to sell some gilts, that lets you know that they're not aware of the real problem. And it only takes one to do the wrong thing. We saw that in 2008. So I think we see something systemic, and I'm not happy about it, but I just think it needs to be prepared for. Yeah, I, you know, it, it could be for sure a lost decade, and we've seen uh, we've seen this before, certainly in our own country. We've seen it in Japan. Um, Douglas asked, Douglas News asked, will it change in, con- in Congress in November affect anything? Um, I don't know which way you're coming at it from, because, you know, like, look, I, I think I think taxes are going up if we see, you know, the Republicans lose the Senate. I think if we see the House um, gained by Republicans, that would certainly be helpful. But, you know, I look, look, the reality is everybody's a political animal these days and we're running in two and four year cycles. And it's gotten very easy for politicians, frankly, both sides to hand out money. It's gotten easy for the Fed to print money. Now it's not going to be easy anymore. And so I, I don't I don't see it getting better. I don't see anyone, anyone on either side willing to actually tackle the issue of our debt and our deficits in a meaningful way. I just don't see it. So I don't know, you know, when 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 Social Security is set to go under, I mean, how are we going to float this? How are we going to make it work? I mean, this is a long term challenge. I'm worried about your take. You know, and it's a great question. And. I will speak from the point of um, a proud American. I hope it does. I don't think it will, but I hope the election will help. I do know that you have to start someplace, right? There has to be a starting point. And will it be effective? 
You know, I was I was speaking with uh, Newt Gingrich uh, a couple months ago, um, and I asked him. I said, you know, the last person to create a balanced you know budget, what would it take for you to do it right now? He said, the first thing he said was impossible, and then he thought about it and said, well, maybe if I had a team around me and I had ten years to do it, I could get us there. And that's just to get to balance. And we know it takes time after that to feel the effect. So um, I have hope change will happen, but I'm preparing for it not to. Yeah, no, I and I think everybody always needs to be realistic, right? right? Again, I don't think it's appropriate for people to say, okay, well, you can't say it's a recession. You can't say there's a... T- I mean, when I first started talking about inflation, when... President Biden first came to office, I was getting, well, shortly after he, he won the election, I was getting hammered by social media. You know, this is not something that you could talk about. Well, I'm sorry, guys. Like, it, it's not transitory. Somehow it's fake news for me to say it's not transitory. Like, as an investor, like, forget the politics for a second. Like, let's just be honest because... This is your family's livelihood, okay? This is your future. This is their future. And so we have to, I think, back out all the political nonsense and just be honest, really honest with each other. I I wish Janet Yellen would be a little bit more honest these days, although honesty keeps getting... She did recently say something about how she goofed on transitory. I don't think the White House liked it very much. They're talking about replacing her now. Um, Cuban asks, where are the peacemakers regarding Ukraine and Russia? Um, yeah, where are they? Right. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how it's gotten so out of hand so quickly. Again, I, I would just point out rush, you know, the, the, the rush, the reliance on Russian energy from the beginning was a mistake. And I don't know why there wasn't more telegraphing. I know Macron went over there and tried to tell Russia, Hey, this is serious, but for some reason, we, we, in my estimation, we missed an opportunity to have diplomatic negotiations, and this has just escalated so quickly, so fast. It seems like it's continuing to escalate. Again, the president using the word Armageddon and nuclear in a in a recent setting, and it, it just it, when I think of that, and I think about what's going on in or had happened in Afghanistan, which was such a travesty. And sure, I want it out, too. I think everybody wanted out. Right. But how do you go about it? How do you do it again? Planning, strategy, policy. This is stuff that matters, whether you're talking about the economy, whether you're talking about energy, whether you're talking about Ukraine and Russia. What do you think? I think our biggest issue with Russia is they don't respect us right now. So we're going to continue to fight a battle because they don't feel like we have the courage to fight them. When we had um, President Obama in office, we saw what they did in Georgia. We saw what they did with the pipeline. President Trump took office and everyone was afraid. Don't mess with this man. All of that stopped. He leaves office. They're in Ukraine. Uh, I don't want to make it a political thing, but, you know, we beat the Soviet Union financially. We didn't beat them militarily. Yeah. Because we had a plan. We had Ronald Reagan saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to battle you, and we know that our plan is stronger than yours, and we're going to make you spend so much money that you can't fight us anymore. 
So it, it comes down to planning. I'm not a wartime strategist. I, I can show you how to <laughs> protect know. your money. But it is planning. You how to win a country. But it came it's down planning. to me then. And we got, you know, my, um, I used to work at Bloomberg and, and uh, my friend Tom Keene still hosts the morning show over there and he asked Jennifer Granholm recently, what is the Granholm plan for energy? And she just laughed. Yeah. And I'm like, go, I mean, she's laughing, laughing, laughing. I mean, I'm sorry, guys. Like, what you doing? Like, what is the plan? What is the, and I feel like our secretary of state just keeps, mangling everything i i even the venezuela situation which i know a heck of a lot about i mean it is just one screw up after another and i just i think there's something else going on and i'm curious what our our viewers and and uh everybody that's that's participating in this call thinks but i suspect that there may have been a time in history when we were getting our best and our brightest in politics. Yes. I do not think we are getting our best and brightest in politics anymore. I think we're getting people with very big egos. We've got career politicians. This is what Biden has done all his life. Plus, he's got the ego. But we're not getting intelligence. We're getting AOC, right? And and people that, um, frankly, in, in my estimation, are very, very immature and don't have the gravitas, the, the pure raw intellect or the skills to be able to both put a policy in place and then see it through. And this is what we are suffering through the consequences of. And so when you worry about America on the world stage for the long haul, you start saying, wait a second, have, is this going to be our undoing? I don't know. I don't want to get too negative. Negative because I, like you, am a big believer in this country as, as just a, a patriot who thinks this is the greatest place. I mean, again, my grandfather never finished fifth grade, never finished fifth grade. And you know what? He wound up in the New Hampshire legislature where he oversaw the educational system for New Hampshire. I mean, he was he was just an incredible, talented man, right? Um, and sort of self-taught. But the beauty of this country has always been that anyone can come from nothing and rise up and it is the american dream and i get chills as i say this but i worry i really do that the american dream is disappearing it will not exist for future generations and we're doing this charles to ourselves what do you think that's the shame is that we are doing it to ourselves we've you know we've allowed families to run politics we've allowed rogues with crazy ideas to run politics we've forgotten to bring people in who have compassion compassion for the united states and compassion for the people of the united states and this is what happens when it turns into just a business we have so long ago forgotten uh for the people by the people and that's the problem we have small groups holding you know the political process hostage because the people in office are worried about what a handful of people may say on social media. It's not your job. Your job is to worry about all of us, each and every one of us. And we don't have that. It takes courage. And this is why you see more and more of the rogue element getting into office because people are fed up. They're willing to try something that doesn't make sense on paper. Because they know what's on paper doesn't make sense either. Yeah. You know, I think back to Ross Perot, right? Who had a, mm. his charts out there and 
you know, he, he explained it in simple ways and, right. you know, he was, he was running as an independent, which was tough because we are this two party system. Perhaps he, if he had run in one party, he would have won. But I think people crave that, which is why I always said when people were discounting back in 2015, they were discounting Donald Trump, um, as a candidate. It, it, the left actually kind of wanted him. Right. They wanted him to run and they they wanted him to be the one that ran against Hillary. And I said, you know, look, careful what you wish for, guys, because he resonates. He resonates in a way that is very uh, authentic with a lot of people. And now I I get it. Like a lot of people, I don't want to make this about Trump. And I, I, I know that a lot of people really didn't like him. But a lot of his policies, I think, made sense. Like he talked about trade in a way that I don't know um, if if the current president possibly could. I don't think the president right now could could talk about these economic issues in a way that totally makes sense. And we're in this sort of la-la land where, you know, suddenly there's a pregnant man emoji <laughs> on 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 uh, the Apple iPhone and, you know, the you know, the 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 swimming competition. I mean, it's it's just getting really, really, really weird. I I won't go there, but let me get back to an economic question here. Steve is asking: In the stagflation of forty years ago, there were still some asset classes that did well, and with housing now in decline, you get commodities in decline, you get tech companies in decline, equities in decline, bonds in decline, everything in decline, precious metals also in decline. What is the best way to preserve wealth? Uh, great question, and a very difficult question. Yeah. Um, you know. In my industry, precious metals, we are down. Uh, we're down the least of any of the other assets. Yep. Um, and there's a reason for that, because this is the asset of rescue. Prices move up and down in everything, right? There is a free market. So I'm not surprised we're down a little bit. Um, and at the same time, I am surprised. This is our market. This is our time. We have a long way to go in this market. I think you see... Uh, Things that have done well in the past won't do well specifically this time for a couple different reasons. Um, housing used to be something, right? The problem is housing was expensive before, before this all began. Interest rates go up. It now may come down a little bit, but it's still too expensive on the face of it. And now you're paying so much more because of that interest rate. I was reading, um, you know, doing the math and what you could have bought um, a million dollar house for two years ago is now the same uh, price payment as a $600,000 house. Wow. So wow. that hurts that asset class, right? Um, you can go with treasuries. They'll never fail you. They just won't pay you much. You, you sign up for treasuries now. You're saying, I agree to lose 5% a year until inflation is fixed. Mm-hmm. That's safe. Um, precious metals, we see a turnaround here, which we will see soon. You'll see that offset the loss that you're seeing in the markets. I think that's probably your strongest way for right now. Um Asset class-wise, until something frees up, I think the bond market's struggling. No one's rushing out to buy a bond today when they know the price of that bond's going to go up. Their interest is going to go up in the next month, so you have trouble there. And when you look at bonds, you have to, you know, signify government bond, corporate bond, corporate bond. I have to make sure I get the right company. Well, yeah, I mean, people can lose their shirts in corporate bonds. I, you know, I. 
I uh, I think you got to be super careful on that. Very um, very careful. You know, I, I've I've made suggestions to people, and by the way, this is not financial advice because I am not a financial advisor, so I'll just preface that. But um, you know, I've said you know, the bottom line, you need a diversified portfolio. Um, there are you know, bonds are getting perhaps in time more interesting. I you know, I the savings, the I bond, right? The the right. savings bond is is paying nearly nine percent right now, which is. Right pretty incredible. Um, but you've got to think about that sort of in a short term. I, I, I think you, you look at things short term and long term. And maybe short term, you're in one asset class. For a lot of people, that's cash. Um, and long term, you're in something more risky and also something more safe. I mean, I look at in, in terms of my own Again, my own, I'm not anybody's financial advisor, but my, my own portfolio, I like having gold because of the purchasing power decline in the U.S. dollar over the last however many years, right? I mean, that to me is pretty um, important. You want to be able to, and I know you can get like a gold-backed IRA, but you want to be able to make sure that you, whatever you have is still going to be worth what it is in the future. And so that's partly why I hold gold. I uh, I told my mom to buy it like way back in 2000 when it was less than $300. So that was a, that was a good call. I mean, given where it is now. And I do agree with you. Gold is one of those things that as I look at my portfolio, my equity portfolio has just gotten killed. Right. Um, and within my 401k, because that stuff is there for a while. I try not to think about it, but when I'm purposely putting money into the market, whether it be dollar cost averaging into equities or bonds or precious metals, I am, um, you know, I, I look at that asset allocation with what the future might be ahead. And gold to me is just one of those things that's sort of a mainstay. So it's not like it's money that I'm going to need tomorrow. And it, it's something that I kind of feel like, okay, you know, 30 years from now, 20 years from now, even 10 years from now, I know that that's going to at least protect the values of my dollars. So that's just from a personal standpoint, how I think of it. Um, let me get to some more questions from people. Gary is asking when the stimulus begins. When does stimulus begin? You know, Gary, there's been a lot. There's been a lot. I don't know. It's, you personally. You know. That's all, Gary. It's out there. They just haven't written that check to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, you're writing the checks, right? As a taxpayer, you're going to have to pay for all those college kids that wanted to study philosophy. Right. Nothing against philosophy. Okay. And nothing against education. Believe me. I just think that it is not the right approach. I think you are going to see more stimulus. Interestingly, um, I would expect that the Biden administration will tout this increase in Social Security that's going to be coming. Um, again, probably one of the biggest we've ever seen in Social Security. And they're going to be like, hey, you know, look, we're giving money back to seniors. Look at the increase in Social Security. But I'm like, the problem is, guys, that's because inflation is so bad. I actually read... Oh, maybe six months, a year ago, an article in the New York Times that was talking about how under Biden wages were going up. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Does this person, does this reporter not understand what real wages are adjusted for inflation? So the same thing, right, with Social Security, if our lives keep getting more expensive, that goes back to the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar declining, therefore making it harder for us to enjoy a similar lifestyle. Absolutely. That's... Well said. <laughs> yeah. Now, Monty's asking, and this is this is a good question for a beginner, like for a novice. 
what is the best way if you want to buy gold or silver like what is the best way to get started in precious metal investing is there something that's better um a technique that's better do you buy a little bit at a time like just go in that's a dollar cost averaging thing or do you buy it in mass what's your take on that charles that a great question monty um that really comes down to your specific scenario if you're sitting on a large amount of cash and it's not working for you, maybe you buy a larger amount and then save some aside and do some dollar cost averaging as you go. Mm-hmm. If you're working with um, an investment where you have metals already, do the dollar cost averaging. There's no right or wrong answer. Okay, I always tell people if you have no metals, you just need to get some. Get started. right? And whatever is comfortable to do that. Keeping in mind that, again, we will see markets move so you can dollar cost average a little at a time if that's comfortable. We do have many people who, who want to buy a little bit at a time each paycheck because they have a plan in place. And, and that's the important thing is your plan. What is your plan? And, and a lot of people will, you know, they'll give us a call and they'll talk to uh, our account representatives and, and they discover what their plan should be by asking questions. And that's the answer to that is. Fix it on your plan. If you're sitting on large cash, maybe you, you buy a larger amount to start. Um, yeah, you and your plan and also you your your tolerance, right? Like if Absolutely. if you need the money tomorrow, right? You know, you, this is again. I I think that people need to sometimes think about investing in terms of what is long term, what is short term. But let me just say, one of our anonymous attendees makes a very important point that his retirement account is down significantly this year. And it reminds him of 2008. I was just talking about the panic of 2008. And he said, I was a lot younger then. And I had time to wait it out, right, for the market to rebound. What, if anything, can I do right now to preserve my retirement account? And again, I am not a financial advisor, but... um you know, I, you know, it's, and I, I wish the anonymous um, person had been watching my show since the start of the year because I've just, I, I hate to be a broken record and I, I don't want to seem too doomsday and too bearish, but I've really been telling people be very cautious. Um, I would say, you know, as, as Charles has been explaining, gold is one of those things that I think may be down less as a result of some of these challenges. And if you really do believe that Armageddon is happening, then you're going to want to have that safety net. I would also just say, and again, consult with your own advisor. But um, one of the things that I am actively doing is looking at dividend stocks and, you know, dividend stocks that you know, if they're going down, at least maybe they'll pay me something, right? As an income. Um, Charles mentioned bonds, but who wants to buy a 30 year bond right now or a 10 year bond? It's smarter perhaps to look at shorter instruments in a six month cycle or a one year cycle. Okay. I get it. Alphonse is, um, and then I think gold is one of those things that, you know, I, I'd be, uh, I, I don't think you should ever think of it as like you're going to cash it out. Do you ever think of your gold as like, okay, I'm going to cash it out? Um, actually, there are times where I, we do that, right? I, I tell people, based on their plan, and we're having more conversations now with the markets doing what they're doing. When this turns around, if you've gone heavier in metals because you don't want to take those losses you see in the equities, there's going to be a period of time, five, six years from now, where the market has given you the return you wanted, and maybe we trim that portfolio at that point. We're believers in diversity in good and bad. So there's going to be a point in time where, you know, people 
speculate where prices of gold can go, and there's some numbers that are out there that you know are, are astronomical, and I'm not going to go with those. But let's just say, and this is a realistic number for me, if we see you know gold touching the $3,500 an ounce, mm-hmm. it's time to take some profits. Yeah. We handle this as an actual investment, right? Does it mean sell all of it? Probably not. But there's nothing wrong with taking some profits. My, my grandfather always told me you never go broke taking a dollar. Right. So at that point, yes, there will be some times where we, we start to rebalance the portfolio. It'll make sense again. You know, Alfonza was just asking a question. Alfonza is uh, someone who I know listens to the show because I've, I've heard from him in the past. And so I want to get his question in here. Alfonza was asking about um, whether or not China is really going to benefit from these challenges that America is facing. I know China's facing its own issues, but what's your take on that? China is facing its own issues. Um, I think the difference, and I think China will benefit. Let me just—I'll answer that question up front, and I'll tell you why. Is the the Chinese citizen handles finances much different than the American citizen? <laughs> yes, they save. Exactly. <laughs> so they plan. What's going to happen? And this is—I mean, even the even China's approach to government, national government—it's always long term. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're worried about 10 years from now. So they will benefit uh, as they have been benefiting. I mean, it wasn't that long ago China needed help. And now they're a a world power, whether we look at it militarily or industrially and financially will come. You know, they're going through some issues right now. But I think the matter in which they handle it and the fact that their their population is not going to be devastated it gives them flexibility in how they handle the challenge of the economy, and they will definitely benefit. Okay, so I've just figured out how to take these questions live. <laughs> my, you know, my, I should be better on Zoom, right, by now. But um, okay, so I am just gonna, I'm gonna tell the team to take the questions live. So we have a question from Russ on the gold standard. Let's go to uh, Russ, who who wants to ask us about the gold standard and uh, something uh, that I think a, a Republican, a Republican lawmaker recently uh, in Congress introduced. Hey, Trish. Hey, Charles. Can you hear me? Hey, Russ. We got you. We got you. Good. Oh, great. I'm glad it's working. I'm glad I'm finally bringing you all into the conversation. (laughs) I am loving this format. Thank you, too, for doing this. Uh, Listen, a correct congressional route introduced a bill this week. You just alluded to it uh, about going back to the gold standard. Now, that could be a logistical nightmare. Um, but my question is really this. Has going off the gold standard killed the purchasing power of the dollar to begin with? Like, well, I want to know your take on that. Um, you know, I think that it probably has had a pretty serious impact. I think back then they, they almost didn't have a choice, right? Because yes. what we were facing was a sort of run on the system um, with France, you know, wanting to, um, they, they were, they were, I mean, it was sort of like Nixon didn't have a choice, I think, um, that they had just allowed this to kind of get out of hand. But I'll, I'll let Charles take that. I think um, a return to the gold standard, to your point, Russ, would probably be extraordinarily challenging from a logistical standpoint. But I wonder if there's like some way, shape or form we could get some discipline back in there. What do you think, Charles? Discipline would fix the problem. Um, Going back to the gold standard wouldn't. And I know it's weird me saying that because 
precious metals. Did you run a gold company? <laughs> no, but, what did you say? But, you know, the reality is there's $31 trillion in circulation. So if we go back to a gold standard, the amount of gold that we have, which is roughly, sorry that I know this, it's going to make me seem very uncool. Um, we have about 287 million ounces of gold in the United States. Mm-hmm. $31 trillion. To back that in any kind of valuation, you would be looking at gold above $10,000 an ounce. Mm. And we would no longer be able to print money. Does it sound, yes, it sounds great idea. If you're starting from a position of balance and correctness, we're not. We need to float money in this administration. We need to float money in these times. We went off that standard because the U.S. had tapped out its growth. We could not grow anymore with the limited amount of currency that we had. So this is why we had to do it. And then France saw a great opportunity, and they were saying, oh, this is good for gold. Give me my gold. I don't want I don't want your dollar. Run on the gold. Mm-hmm. Give me that gold. That's mm-hmm. far more important to me. I can get it without mining it. This is great. This is why we went off that gold standard. And we went to the petrol, like I said. I'm giving Nixon credit for that. That was a brilliant piece of, of work that he did. Um, but we needed to get off of it so that we could grow. And this is, again, what we talked about earlier. The government does have to have some ability to shrink and, and to expand. Yeah. No, I, you know, it's just that at the same time, there's got to be, I mean, what was done, it's like, frankly, it's like malpractice. It was, to me, almost criminal what the Federal Reserve did and to sit there and tell us it was transitory for so long. It was so obvious to anyone who was willing to look that it wasn't. Um so uh, let me let me get some more people in here now that I've finally figured out. Hopefully we didn't lose some people because I didn't get to maybe Stephen Winnington, if he wants to ask that question, he's got one on Saudi Arabia. We see that they're cutting oil production. What's that all going to mean? Uh, can we bring Stephen in? You're with us, Stephen. I think so. Hey, there you Great. Are. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Hello. Uh, I think I saw somewhere on the news where President Biden is uh, trying to punish Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, I I don't see how that's going to work. <laughs> you know, I, I think you you make a, a good um you make a good point. I don't. I would just say again, like, why aren't they thinking this through? Right before <laughs> you start picking fights with uh, various countries or entities around the world, wouldn't you think you'd want to have your own oil supply kind of locked down, right? Like maybe we'd say, okay, we don't need Saudi Arabia if we've got ourselves or if we have green energy. If you want green energy, okay, go get it, but make sure you have it first, right? Instead, you're, you know, starting something with a country that has an enormous amount of power, whether you like it or not, because you're not willing to do it yourself. We were energy independent, by the way, a few years ago. Yes. And now, um, Charles, your thoughts? Well, it, it's funny. You want to fight them now after you gave them back the power. We could have had uh, an opinion about what they produce three years ago, mm-hmm. where we would be able to meet the supply that they cut. Yeah. That would give us greater strength. But I think this is this is the case of, of Grandpa getting off of the recliner and being angry and talking nonsense because he doesn't know what he's talking about. 
I, you know, I, I, I'm not an ageist and I would point out that I've looked at old videos of him. I actually remember him. I, I heard him speak in New Hampshire when I was like a little kid, little, little kid and he was running for president. He's been around for a while. I think he was just as bad back then. I mean, he's gotten worse, of course. And, you know, the age has everywhere. They're going to celebrate his 80th birthday, but uh, you get it. The, a very important point, which is that he, I don't think he knows what he's talking about either. And I don't think anyone at state thought this through. I mean, if you want to pick fights with Saudi Arabia, then I don't know, maybe lock down Venezuela first. Most importantly, lock down us first, right? But like have a go-to place. We have no go-to place. So that means the go-to place is to make it miserable for the American people. And frankly, that's just wrong. I'm going to get my Irish up again. Um, let's go to Kurt because he's got some questions on the Fed. Uh, Kurt joining us right now about the Fed raising rates and causing harm for the poor and middle class. And, and like I said, uh, this is what makes me angry. Go ahead, Kurt. If we can get him in there. Maybe not. So uh, Kurt's asking, he said, rich people will continue to own all the resources, will continue to buy businesses, land and single family homes, getting more power while everyone else gets further into poverty. The, the result is rich will lay off workers, resulting in more poverty. Do you think civil war will happen as more people lose their jobs, homes and businesses? You know, Kurt, I'm going to tell you something. I said this, I don't know, maybe three years ago on live television in a commentary that my fear for this country and I didn't say that we're actually and I don't believe I hope to goodness we don't ever wind up in a military like situation like that but my fear really is that you're seeing such division that we could be in a civil war not with generals but like some kind of you know it was a metaphor of of sorts and I, I just got hammered by all kinds of publications for saying such a thing. Of course, when Paul Krugman comes out and says it or, <laughs> you know, anybody over there at the New York Times, it's all fine. Do I, I think, I think there's a real risk. And I'll tell you this border issue is, is part of it because if you're Texas, how unfair is that? That you are shouldering that economic, that social burden of all these people coming in and you're trying to assimilate them. You're trying to make sure that, you know, and, and the federal government's like, you have to do it because we're not putting up any borders. Well, if I'm Texas, I'm like, this is my money. This is my taxpayer dollars. And by the way, they don't have a state income tax there in, in Texas. They have to get it through, through other methods. So why are we Texans having to pay for something that frankly, the federal government should be handling? Well, meanwhile, up in Martha's Vineyard, in Martha's Vineyard, they, you know, they, they get a few refugees and they, they absolutely freak out and they, mind. you know, and it just seems morally to me wrong. One of my little kids was asking me about, you know, if they were to come to our town, would we, t-? and I said, you know what? I hope to goodness we would. If they showed up and we're sitting here saying, you know, come one, come all and, and hanging posters and putting out signs about immigration as an issue, which by the way, I live, live in a liberal Northeast town, right? So I would hope my town would absolutely help them and welcome them and do what they need to because why the heck should it all be on Texas? This is a federal issue. So when Kurt asks about is there a risk of civil war back, you know, however many years ago when I got mocked by the mainstream media for suggesting that we could have some real problems, now I look at it and say these problems are growing because there's an economic and social component where we're putting an unfair burden on certain states and that is not how the federal system is supposed to work. What do you think? 
I, I agree with that. And I think there's another piece to that whole immigration issue here in Texas specifically. You have... Um, a oh, and you are in Texas, right? So that's actually more relevant. And, and we have a Republican state. And we know well, the way voting is going. If you show up, you're going to get to cast a vote. Mm-hmm. So to me, there's a political component as well. All of those things that you mentioned are horrible, right? We are shouldering a very large burden. And it's not that we don't have compassion for people who, who, who are coming over. we just saying, enter it legally and we'll help. There's programs to help you. Do it legally, right? But this political component is important because what it does now is increases Democratic vote in a known Republican state. Yeah. Where we have a, 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 an administration that wants to let anyone vote. They don't even care. <laughs> and I'm going to throw in there the decriminalization of, of marijuana. Okay. Mm-hmm. The only reason there's a pardon is that those, those people can vote. Because if it's no longer a felony, they now have access to vote. And mm-hmm. if somebody lets you out of jail, who are you going to vote for? Well, assuming you vote. But they may. I mean, look, I I will say this. I think the Democrats have been very organized and in in some ways done a much better job than Republicans in terms of their organizational grassroots strategy to to get those people to vote, whether it be via absentee, whether it be, you know, going to the the whatever homes and, you know, bringing everybody by bus or incentivizing them. I mean, that's that's something that, you know, if you if you want to. Um, play the game fair and square there. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have a little trouble with the absentee stuff, but Republicans probably need to do a better job at, and, uh, I hear you. I hear you. Um, let me, let me get into how do the BRIC countries gold currency affect the, Stephen Healy, can you join us if you're there right now, Stephen? Uh, we're going to go to Stephen who's got a question. We'd love to hear from Stephen Healy. Again, my tech skills seem to be lacking. I hope I'm doing that right in terms of asking, or maybe he doesn't want to actually have his microphone on. It's hard for me to tell, like, if people want their <laughs> microphones on or if they don't. Um, so let me go to, to Cuban because you've had a lot of questions in here. We've got Gary, Douglas, Michael, so many people um, it, it, with, that are putting in questions. And uh, we want to try and get to as many as we can, Kurt as well. But Cuban, if you're there and you want to talk live, um, you're welcome to uh, join the conversation. Can you hear me? I sure can. Yeah. Oh, I, I wasn't sure how to do it. Uh, <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> screen. All this together, Stephen. I'm just curious about how the BRICS countries mm. and how gold gold currency is going to affect the United States going into the into the future. Um, great question. I mean, the, the BRIC countries uh, actually aren't going to affect us. Um, other than some, some manufacturing that 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 uh, they they do, um, their economies aren't up to the up to our equivalent. So, I think it's great when you have a, an example of a of a gold backed, a gold protected kind of an environment. Uh, it's just that they aren't the world powers that uh, the United States is. Um, it, it's nice to see as an example that it works in that scenario. Um, but it works not just because they have a gold standard. They also have a different mentality about debt. So that's where their effectiveness comes. But it, it's not going to affect us what we do here. Um, we are still the, the currency of the world. 
Yeah. No, I think that's, you know, relevant. And a lot of people have talked about Bitcoin in the past, which has just gotten hammered. By the way, not like gold, not like gold. Um, but, you know, gold has kind of been around a long, long time. Richard Benjamin talking about inflation. Um, Richard, do you want to unmute your microphone? Uh, forgive me, I have not been telling people to unmute their microphone. This is a new stage I'm learning in the Zoom <laughs> chat. But if you unmute your mac- microphone, do you want to join us to talk about uh, the price inflation? And if not, I will ask his question. Richard is asking, how long will inflation continue? Hey, to Trish, hey, oh, there you are. Thank you. Hey, Trish, hey, Charles. Can you guys hear me? Gotcha. Hi, Richard. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to ask this question. You know, um, I typed it out and it was just something that was coming to my mind. But economists said, you know, wholesale inflation rose more than expected in September, you know, with prices jumping to nearly 8.5 percent, you know, um, how long will inflation continue to go up? And are we looking at months, years? I know earlier you guys were talking about five years, maybe longer. Um, wanted to get some thoughts on that. Go ahead. Maybe, uh, okay. Charles, if you want to take that. Yeah, and I think what we said um, previously is relevant, too. Uh, you could see five years. They're going to go up as long as we don't approach the the fix in an appropriate manner. You can't halfway raise rates to stamp out inflation. You can't. It's like if we were in a boxing match and you're fighting me with one hand, you're going to win eventually, right? Because I don't box. But it's going to take you a lot longer to get there than if you had two hands. And the way the Fed is fighting this inflation it is with one hand behind their back. They're not actively doing what they need to do. So it's going to take longer. And it could be five years. It could be longer. It could be less if we begin to take an approach that makes sense. So the answer is, I can't give you a definite answer, but until you see responsible actions by the Fed, expect it to be bad. Yeah, I I agree with that. Expect it to be bad because I don't think, and, and we talked about this earlier, if you look at it apples to apples, you're looking at inflation that's much more similar to the early 1980s than what they're telling us it is now. And that's just apples to apples with the same metrics. And it took a whole lot more from Volcker to make that happen and, and bring inflation you know, down. And, and we went through a recession in the process. So I think that we need to be prepared for that. But long term, I'm most concerned about our long term challenges because we're never going to be able to pay this. I mean, I don't know how we get our our debt load down. And to Newt's point that you said, Newt Gingrich saying to you recently, like, look, you know, it could take 10 years. And that's if I had enough people that were willing to do it. And we don't have the willingness to do it because it's too easy to just send a tweet about whatever and promise whatever and give money to college grads who signed on the dotted line to pay it back and you know and the the person who worked three jobs to put his kids through school or her kids through school you know they're still having to pay the price for this so we're kind of in a in a sort of reckless financial environment which bothers me let me ask um david zimmerman to join us uh david zimmerman has a call uh, a question he's uh got something on on social security david uh if you can unmute your microphone Yes, I was just asking, despite the um, cost of living increases that were announced, um, how do fixed income um, elderly Americans um, face these inflationary challenges, especially when you're talking about multiple years that it could go on? 
Yeah, I. It's going to be tough for them. Um, you, you know, you look. People want to be able, Charles, right, to be able to, and David to, to live in the same home, right? You don't want to have to move to a state that's cheaper. And, you know, gets the whole new group of friends and a whole new lifestyle because you can't afford your cost of living where you are. I mean, sure, you could move to a, a cheaper country somewhere, too. You know, there's a lot of ways maybe, but it's not right. It's not what people should have to do. And this is where I get angry with government because, to me, price stability is one of those things that they should really be looking out for. And they failed us. And it's going to have serious consequences. But I don't know. I mean, I think if you're older, you have to really um, face the reality that you may have to change your lifestyle because your savings is not what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's it's, it's one of the, um, the hardest conversations I have with people. Um, and, and the quality of their life after working their entire life should be what they want it to be. Yeah. I, I know... In 2008, we saw that massive decline. I had I had people calling me late, of course, and crying on the phone. And I don't handle that very well. I'm a sensitive guy, no matter what I look like. Um, and it's tough. I don't. There is no other answer to say I'm sorry that you you weren't prepared. Let's not lose the rest of it. Get a plan in place. Yeah. But there is nothing you can do after it happens and yeah. I don't want that to sound wrong but after it happens it's you know there's an old saying I'd rather be six months too early than one day too late yes um, which is why I think you know if anything like people should just really I think, you know, get a hold of it. This is this is the most important thing. Like, I, I get it. You know, all of us have pressures with jobs. Um, there was a financial commentator. I loved it. She used to say, pay yourself first, right? Make sure you put your money aside for your savings, your 401k, all that good stuff. But this is stuff that people have to pay attention to. And it's critical that they do. And you can't just, you know, look the other way and hope for the best because at some point it's going to catch up with you. And I don't even know if we can rely on Social Security to be there at some point. So you want to make sure you take ownership of your finances on really yourself. And it's um, it, it can seem intimidating and challenging, but there's different ways to do that. I mean, certainly, you know, Charles's company helps on one side of that from the precious metals perspective. And there's others as well that can help you get a handle on it. And you can do it yourself. I mean, I think that a lot of a lot of investors I meet, Charles, especially the ones that like listening to my show, I think they are kind of do-it-yourself kind of people and they want to be very hands-on and they want to be involved themselves. And I've heard a lot of great success stories, actually, um, when you do the right research and you, you really right. dig in and take responsibility. Um, Henry, Henry Clays is joining us. Um, we just have time for a few more questions. So if you want to get them in, please do. I, I may not get to everyone, and I apologize for that. But Charles and I are going to do this again because it's fun. <laughs> we like it. And I finally figured out how to turn your microphones on. So, hey, you know what? Progress. Um, so <laughs> Henry, Henry Clays is, is asking, he said uh, something about, you know, the, the U.S., um, paying so much in terms of service costs. I'll let you take it away, Henry. Because you're still on mute, Henry. Okay. 
if if Henry's still on mute, he's welcome to join us if he unmutes it. But I would just say he makes a very good point as I look through all of these that our cost of servicing our debt, Mm -hmm. it's going to be high. It's going to be high. So what does that do to inflation? Does that make it worse? Is it inflation as far as you can see out? Uh, Inflation as far as we can see out. And in fact, just yesterday, the Federal Reserve went into the red. They no longer had the cash available to manage and service the debt that we currently have. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I both know the Federal Reserve can't go broke. They'll just print some more up. Um, But it... It's the first time that it's We're going to be carrying our dollars in wheelbarrows. We, we will. Uh, well, hopefully, hopefully our not. Be I mean, that's gold, happened in history. But, <laughs> yeah. but you know, we, we, we have that issue. And, and part of the scenario, and this is, you know, this leads into um, part of the debate about what's going on with interest rates and things. And, and, and we could see them delaying purposely because their balance sheet is so full already. Mm-hmm. We've heard the word, and, and, and my guys here laugh every time I say it, because any time I hear it on the news and things, I get a little irate. Quantitative tightening. It's not a real thing. We made this word up just like we made up quantitative easing. It doesn't exist. But what they're saying is we have debt that we bought on our balance sheet that we need to unload. So the next recession that comes, we can start all over again. So yeah. this is why we talk about quantitative tightening. We're so in debt now, I need to find a way to get rid of this so that I can buy your bad debt later. Mm-hmm. And so they're dragging their feet to some degree to offload their balance sheet. And now that it's in the red, they need to become more aggressive with it. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm very troubled by it. I'm very troubled by it. Kurt has a couple questions in here. And as we come up on our time here, maybe we can get to Kurt, um, who's got a few questions. Uh, if you want to ask us, um, let me, uh, click on some of these. And, uh, Kurt, if you're joining us, go ahead. And you just have to unmute your microphone. He makes the point. How did it, did it on mute? You did it. Yeah, you know. You got it. Oh my god. We're gosh. all learning. <laughs> yeah, technical technical support. I need technical support. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I get it. But you had a couple questions in there. I mean, I, I you you touched on something that that was recently in the news um, about foreigners buying up assets here in the U.S. And I just saw a story the other day. Actually, the story was on my website on Trish Intel, trishintel.com. We did a story on how there's so much buying up and it's been going on for a while now of U.S. farmland by a lot of foreigners, including China. So um, what was your question in terms of regarding that, Kurt? Well, I, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the inflation of uh, housing and land as well as just the um, rich people in the hedge funds that now own one in seven of every American single family homes. I think there needs to be legislation to protect, you know, the um, people that are, you know, in the housing market that actually are the workers and the laborers and people that need to exist without, you know, people moving into the area and then buying up all the property and 
and, you know, raising up the cost of the house. I mean, you still need a place to live and it's an inelastic demand. You can't just not live in a house. So your taxes go up, your property values go up with the, you know, the taxes go up with the property values. So um, we're having a lot of that in, in my state where, you know, uh, Zillow or large hedge funds or even just wealthy people are buying up all the properties and then they raise the rents and people can't afford to pay the new rents. So they end up just having to move out. So I, I think that's happening a lot um, in, in a lot of areas. So I think there actually needs to be some sort of legal protections for the American people across well, the whole country. I think what you're getting at. And I say this as like a red-blooded American capitalist, right? I do believe that capitalism is not perfect, but it sure beats the alternative, right? When you look at what Venezuela has been experiencing or the former Soviet Union or, you know, take your pick. I mean, it, it just hasn't ever really worked. But simultaneously, increasingly, and I blame the Fed, by the way, for this. And all their money printing and the incentives they gave to investors to just keep, you know, Hmm. pouring money in and, and gaining sort of more control over, over capital is, is that those with capital, those with money have a total an unfair advantage over labor that is really sort of messed up, right? And, and that's where these hedge funds that come in and investors that come in and they're buying up housing, they, they have a, a big advantage. And I worry, I worry, and I've done a lot of studying and a lot on Latin America, a lot of reporting actually in Latin America and extensive travel and very, very well sourced. In fact, my first job was actually as an emerging debt market analyst at Goldman Sachs, where we were analyzing and trading, of course, and, and coming up with derivative products for for sovereign debt vehicles in, in all these countries, specifically Venezuela, Mexico, Argentina, and Brazil. So I know a lot about this. And I was always amazed by how two-tiered their economies were where you had the rich and it's like the the uber one percent in the country and then everybody else and there's really no middle class and one of the things that is so fundamental kurt to us as america is that that strength of the middle class if you don't have that middle class you don't have america and so well you have to be careful about legislating right and therefore creating more red tape and making it harder for small business owners and people to get a foothold in the door you also have to be very wary of this two-tiered system that is you know the elites effectively controlling everything that is not who we are it's not who we were ever intended to be and i think that that's a real danger for our society i know charles you you share this and i know you're i believe you're a veteran as well and and you care so passionately about this country and what it represents and what it can be so how do we ensure that the american middle class is vibrant is well and is is preserved as we go into sort of this new treacherous area in these different times yeah, that's an interesting question. And, you know, I'm going to go back to that housing for just a minute, too. We have to we have to look at it in the big picture and realize that this big um, corporate move into residential housing happened because of 2008. We had so many homes foreclosed that were sitting on banks' books, which banks aren't allowed to have that real estate sitting there, that they create, created the policy to give monies to these corporations who could take the properties away. We created a monster, as often happens with governmental programs. It turns into this being that's 
big and hard to get rid of and doesn't perform the way it was meant to perform. Um, how do we protect the middle class? We have to get less government involvement. We, we have to let America be America. Are we perfect? No. I wouldn't be anywhere else, though. Having have the I have I have the option. I could move. I wouldn't go anywhere else. Mm. So the answer to it is to vote in a way that is meaningful. Don't follow party lines. I don't care who your party is. Research the individual and make sure they stand for what you stand for. This is how we make change. Is it fast? No. Is it hard? Yes. But if we all do it, we share that load, and shared loads are much easier to manage than going it alone. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's very, very, very well said. And I think, you know, in, in our hearts, at our core, we, we're all American, and as divided as this country has gotten, I think we all put... Um, ourselves our country first our families first and these are these are values that are just intrinsic to so many of us as individuals too as individuals so i think your advice in terms of holding our lawmakers accountable on either side is very smart and lawmakers and the rest of the team including the fed because we've <laughs> we've got to make sure that we we have a future for ourselves and our children and i believe we will because over time the american people remember we always get it right we really really do so on that note i first of all apologize to all of the questions we have so many thank you so much to everybody for tuning in i promise you we will do this again charles and i have already talked about it so i'm going to be back here with you in the meantime you can maybe submit some of these questions over at trishintel.com and we will make sure that charles gets them as well so you're, you're welcome to do that and hopefully we get some more answers to you you can also call charles's team um and they can help you answer some of these if you've got some questions about investing or retirement they can probably help you through a lot of that we love having you here i hope that you uh you 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 take care of yourselves and you take care of your investing and your families and your future thank you for listening to this show i'm there always for for cuban who was wondering yes fluffy will be back on the show tomorrow and thank you again all great to have you here charles my thanks to you and your team for putting this together it's really wonderful oh thank you it was wonderful